debt is is really the core that underpins how our economic system works. If we zoom out on sort of on on the big picture, um, what do we have? We have um, banks. Well, what are they? They're private corporations. They're private corporations who have the ability to print money. And in fact, in the UK, they've made about they make about ninety seven percent of the uh, currency in circulation. So we've given power to private corporations to which have a profit motive to print money and give that out to people. Hello and welcome. I'm Shiza, your host of Rain Vision Business and co-founder of UpEffects. If you're new to our work, over the last five years, we've loved amplifying and supporting business models that prioritize equity, conservation, and economic empowerment. And now we're advancing this work through our Reinvision Business Podcast. This series will highlight the emerging need for responsible trade that uplifts communities frequently left behind. In each episode, we'll invite thought leaders to deconstruct our current systems, and with their help, we'll spotlight models that are re-envisioning business. Together, we'll unearth a blueprint for an economy redesign. In this episode, we're joined by Umar Nasser, a junior NHS doctor training in psychiatry and co-founder of Rational Religion. Rational religion shows the relevance of Islamic teachings to solve today's problems, and it has a particular focus on Islamic economics, both from a contemporary and historical perspective. This was an incredibly action-packed conversation that we've decided to split into two episodes. In the first episode, we review capitalism, socialism, the banking sector, and its impact on society. In the second episode, we explore the Islamic economic model and what it has to offer to address today's most pressing problems. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Omar Nasser. Umar, thank you so much for joining me today. It's such an honor as I've been following rational religion since its very early days of inception. And it's been so fascinating to see the amount of time and effort that goes into creating each content piece. And every article and video is packed with so, so much wisdom. I'm excited to dive deeper into your views on economic systems today and really looking forward to our conversation. Thank you very much. That was the nicest introduction I've ever had. I appreciate that. I, I would say that the um, a lot of the work that we do is uh, really repackaging the content uh, produced by the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and the um, caliphs of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. So uh, I think it can seem very, very good to to the external world, but it's really you know things that they've that they've written which we're kind of just presenting and we're so excited about it and we think that it's so beneficial for the world and that's why we put it out there and and, and thankfully you know many people are having uh, similar responses great and i'm excited to learn more about how the learnings that you've gained um, by being an Ahmadi muslim and a member of the community and how that has informed a lot of the work that you've done within rational religion so I shared a little bit about your work in the introduction, um, but it would be great if you could walk us through where your journey began and what inspired your interest in the study of how our economic systems operate. I think it was, um, you know, the last five years in particular, politically have been quite uh, tum tumultuous, I think that's the word, um, in the sense that there's been lots of... Um, 
revolutionary type ideas, or there's been a feeling that something drastically needs to change. And in many ways, that's been there since 2008, and we had the crash, and there was this kind of civilizational shock in Western civilization that, you know, we thought we were in the great moderation and uh, things were going swimmingly, and turns out how economic systems aren't, invun aren't uh, invulnerable. And then after that, you had massive bailouts of the super rich um, and followed most often, especially in the UK, as well as in much of Europe, austerity measures. And seven, eight years after that, you started having people like Jeremy Corbyn, Bernie Sanders, etc. You started having people saying, actually, we need to um, distribute the wealth that we have a lot better than, than we are. Um, so I think it was kind of, you know, we see that in the culture. Um, and we see lots of, you know, poverty, homelessness, even in, even in our, you know, very rich countries. And as soon as you start seeing that and you start looking into it, at least for me and I, I know, you know, my brother and people that, I, that I've spoken to, and I'm sure yourself as well, you start wondering, how can we improve this situation? How can we change it for the better? And a lot of the responses have been, um, you know, let's say from the political left in particular, that how we need to um, tax this more, how we need to have better regulations in this area more, how we need to uh, just just make these changes here and there and there, and we'll be fine. And if we just went, I mean, I know they don't exactly say this, but if we went back to the 50s, we went back to the 70s, at least in terms of the spirit, then things would be okay. But what I've always wondered is, what makes you think that if we go back to much heavier regulation, we're not going to end up exactly where we are now, you know, 15, 20 years later. What makes you think that there's not an inherent drive towards uh, wealth inequality and injustice that's inherent in the system itself? And if you entertain that as a possibility and you start looking at, well, what is our economic system? How does it really work? Is the natural history of modern economic history um, or the modern economic world uh, something which is contingent, something which was just the because of a few people's decisions, Thatcher's, Reagan's, et cetera? Or actually, is there something more inherent to the system which is driving those changes, which necessarily tends towards the kinds of the kind of world that we see? Um, and as, as my suggestive statements have already indicated, I do believe that it's something more inherent and um, uh, something underlying uh, the way that our economic system works that has resulted in these inequalities. And that produces, you know, all kinds of social problems. Um, and to my own field of work, I'm a psychiatrist or training to be a psychiatrist. You know, you have so many mental health problems and there, there are diverse causes of mental health problems. Um, you know, even if you lived in an economic utopia, you would have mental health problems. But we, we do know that there are social drivers and uh, inequality and poverty and the stresses that that brings is uh, a major cause uh, in my view. And I think most people would share it of um, our mental health crisis because you know if you're if you're uh, hand to mouth obviously but also if you're a single mother and you have to work and you have to take off to take care of kids um, that can produce stresses for you for the children etc cetera, etc cetera. so the economic system is something that bleeds into our entire world and into our geopolitical scene um, so I think it was a recognition of how can we fix this problem and then oh is there something inherent in the problem and then from my own perspective, looking into Islam, and when I started learning more, more about Islamic economics, I was like, wow, people should know about this because actually Islam has very, very delicately, very carefully identified root causes and proposed solutions which are becoming uh, more well appreciated as time goes on. I mean, it's, it's really interesting how your day-to-day -day work and you're seeing much of the impact 
that our current economic systems have had on you know the the day-to-day lives of individuals and you're seeing that through your job on a day-to-day basis what do you think are i mean given that we're still operating under the same economic systems that have existed for the last several decades what do you think those systems have to offer and how have our financial and business models and the organizations that we all work within, how have they evolved around these systems? Um, I think if we're talking about in the modern West, obviously we have a capitalistic system. The only alternative that um, people think there is to that is essentially communism. Um, so if it's okay, I guess I'll talk a little bit about what um capitalism entails um and yeah that that would be great it's it's uh it's major it's major um good factor over communism for instance is the fact that individual um effort results in individual reward and you have genuine uh you know legitimate property ownership um, and it essentially means that if you put your labor into something that you can actually see the reward of that and you can benefit from it. Whereas communism obviously is, you know, um, from each according to their capacity and to each according to their need. So it says, I don't care about the natural inequalities that do exist in, you know, maybe effort, maybe intelligence, maybe all different kinds of skills. I'm going to take from you what you can give, but I'm only going to give back to you what I deem, I being the state, or what I deem is necessary essentially for your bare survival. And it means that people were reduced essentially to um, to human machines in, in, in many respects, and they weren't really able to express themselves. They were kind of just laborers you know, ironically end up much more alienation than um, the system which Marx opposed. Um, so that's kind of the one of the major problems with communism. Obviously, there are others. And that's one of the main major boons of capitalism is that, you know, you can, you can own property, you have a reasonable amount of economic freedom. If you have the capital, if you have the money, you can spend it on things that you want to do. Um, so that's, a, that's an excellent point of capitalism, which shouldn't be uh, underappreciated. The problem is, is that um, it, it doesn't cater for everyone. And, uh, there are certainly losers, big losers. You know, if you have a system which is driving increasing inequalities, uh, then you have states which don't necessarily, most often, at least in the UK and the US experience, um, especially US actually it's worse there, don't take care of people in terms of, uh, the people at the very bottom rungs of the ladder, and they don't provide for everyone. They don't make sure that everyone has a bit of a basic minimum of um, provision. Then you, it becomes a kind of, a, you know, to varying degrees, essentially the Wild West, where you know you, you can do very well if you've got the money, and uh, you are, you know, rob some people or you're a bank. Although the same thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, if you don't have the capital and maybe you started off um, on the losing side of the equation, then it can mean that, that um, can, those losses can perpetuate. And we idealize people who, you know, um, manage to make something from nothing, so to speak. But actually, they're, they're very rare and there are far more uh, invisible people who actually really, really struggle and they're the vast majority. So capitalism, unfortunately, as a as a system doesn't, cater very well for for everyone uh but it does uh give people individual freedoms and it and it it allows some people to flourish but what we really need is a system which does both we need we need a system that has um provision for people on a basic level and it also allows people to flourish 
And I think what I'd argue is that um, capitalism is too imbalanced and communism is far too imbalanced. And we need a happy medium. Um, now, social democracies seek to achieve that. They seek to um, uh, do that through taxing and spending, etc. But um, maybe we can get onto this. The natural history of capitalism has shown that that doesn't really work and it always tends to go in the opposite direction. Um, and it requires an enormous amount of force and activism, etc., even to get small gains. Um, so I think that that's my reading of the, <clears throat> on the very, very macro level of, um, of the current economic system. Obviously, we can discuss things in further detail. How much do you think of today's, the issues that exist within capitalism are due to the leadership and the political power that exists in individual countries and the impact that or the control that they have over their economic policies versus the economic model itself? I think um, this is going to be very esoteric and therefore probably quite unclear. So feel free to clarify it. Um, I tend to think that both in science and in every level of um, abstraction, things work in mutually dependent systems. So for instance, the traditional view of genes and of the cell of biology is that it's DNA focused. So it's DNA genes, make proteins, make um, cells, make tissues, make organs. So it's very, very un one way up. But the modern view of biology is actually, oh, actually it's very, very two way because the cell decides what cells, what genes to express. And if you have a, a segment of DNA, DNA, a large segment, you can actually express that in different ways. Um, and it's also responding to stresses in its ultimate environment. So you have this kind of very top, uh, bottom up uh, process with DNA up to proteins and to ultimate manifestation and phenotype. But you also have a very um, top down uh, flow. I'm not sure if I said all that, right, but you have bottom up, you have top down, we have the external affecting the internal. So I, I kind of see that at, at many, many different levels. And I think also in the economic world, which is that um, you have a system with certain uh, inherent policies, you know, the structure of the system, and <clears throat> that itself will um, produce um, certain problems. But it will also, because of those problems that come out, so for instance, if you have a system that tends towards inequalities, you're going to produce, um, you know, elites. And once you have elites, then they're going to cap economically. So then they're obviously going to try and capture government, which is which you can do, which you can do with money, unless your people are very, very morally upright. But yeah. you exert enough force, then it's going to break things open. So once you have a system which starts to produce economic elites, then they start to capture government and then they become political elites. And then they can re um they can rig the system in their favor even more. So then they can change policies to to give more wealth to them. And then they capture more of government and they can keep on changing policies. So you have a system from a top-down level which produces inequalities and which concentrates wealth. But that itself um, accelerates the the whole process, I guess, from, from the bottom up because those people then change the system to continue that cycle. Um, and also even on, on another, perhaps more abstract level, it also determines the kinds of values that people have. Because if you have a society which... Um, caters for you know runaway uh, wealth um, expansion then that becomes something that's idealized in your society and in the absence of religion and other moral values and you know in today's world we've largely done away in the west with religion um, people take that as their god 
Do people take that as the thing to which they which they desire and which they want to bring closer to them as money? So it also changes the moral values in your society. Uh, and it makes you very, very distressed if you don't have money. So everyone's chasing money. And of course, if you have a culture which chases money and you have an economic elite who are getting richer and also have that same, have those cultural values, then everything feeds into itself. So the system becomes mutually reinforcing. So I don't think you can really separate the two um, very, very cleanly. Uh, but I do think that the... Um, Oh, and also actually just, sorry, just last point on this. I think in a way that's also demonstrated by um, the system of interest in terms of how it was legalized. Because it took many, many centuries for it to be legalized in the West and for the current economic policies to even be morally accepted by society. I think it was in, uh, you know, it was in Henry VIII's time, basically, it was in the uh, 16th century, that interest was finally legalized because Christian economists and jurists weren't able to, uh, I guess... Um, you know, propose an alternative in, in some respects. Um, but it was hated. People people thought that people who charge interest are the lowest of the low. You know, they were in a certain ring in Dante's Inferno. So it was something that was greatly morally looked down upon. But the, you know, a small group of people, I guess, lobbied and changed that. And then that itself changed the culture over the centuries to the point where it's now completely accepted and we have a very, very materialistic culture. Um, so my overall point was... Driven by interest. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it all becomes mutually reinforcing in my view. Does that make right. sense? <laughs> it it does. It does. And for context for for our listeners as well, there's what roughly two about two thousand billionaires in the world, and together um, they hold over seven hundred and sixty billion dollars in wealth. So um, they have obviously a lot of power in terms of how much. Um, they can influence policies and um, the direction that governments take because a lot of those in power also either strongly connected to those that have this um, have access to this wealth or they themselves are um, belonging to the same community. And we've seen um, in the UK, for instance, we saw you know with with the COVID nineteen how so many contracts were given to the friends of our, you know government um, advisors or um, office holders. In terms of the wealth inequalities that exist in the world today, so we see what 700 million people are still living in extreme poverty. How have we allowed capitalism to grow into the position that it currently holds and the hold that it has over so many of our systems, whether it's business, whether it's media, whether it's politics? Do you think our economic systems are working? Uh, they're working for some people very, very well. Um, and in the same way that you have inequalities and winners and losers within a country, you also have winners and losers on the global stage. So, I mean, much of the damage that's reaped by our countries and by our corporate culture is invisible to us. It's in, you know, all the resources that are being plundered from Africa in the capture of the IMF and the World Bank in many respects, at least cognitively. I'm not saying it's a giant conspiracy, though it may be. I mean, I don't know. I'm not privy. But, um, you know, in terms of the, 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 the models that people produce have ended up in the IMF and the World Bank given structural adjustment um, loans to countries in sub-Saharan Africa, which is basically will give you this money plus interest if you change all your policies to be a neoliberal model and allow, liberalize your resources, uh, liberalize your policies so that resources can be taken from you. And for instance, you saw, you know, a lot of those people who are living in that extreme poverty that you mentioned are in that region. Um, and 
where we now, you know, 60 years ago, their uh, national economic growth was reasonably okay. Um, it wasn't amazing, but actually they were developing and the development has massively started to well, slow down and in relative terms is probably completely stagnated in, in many parts. Um, and the economic problems obviously cause, you know, civil unrest and social problems. Um, so I think it's working well for, for some people and it depends where you are on the ladder. Um, but for, but quite obviously the fact that we have 700 million people in extreme poverty, um, and the fact that there are many more in, in relative poverty, and even in our own countries, we have people on the streets, I think shows a massive failure of the system, you know, in 2020 to actually, um, deliver on its pro promise, which was the general upliftment of all, because that's what people who are very pro-capitalist say that it's the best system for, um, for, uh, uplifting the world. And it's been the most effective system of doing that. Um, but I think, I think the facts stand contrary to that. And there's either something wrong with the system or there's something wrong with the people implementing it or both. So let's, let's take debt as an example, which you mentioned earlier as well. How does debt contribute to wealth inequalities? Um, because debt is very, very much a core funding mechanism that exists in, you know, whether it's personal financing, it's student financing or business financing or anything else, but debt is very much strongly pushed to the average person. So how does that work and how is that contributing to the problems of capitalism? Um, I think it's, uh, you know, in many ways, the major mechanism of capitalism. So it's uh, benefiting those who implement it extremely well. It's not a problem for them. It's a problem for everybody else. Um, so, I mean, debt is is really the core that underpins how our economic system works. If we zoom out on sort of on, on the big picture, um, what do we have? We have um, banks. Well, what are they? They're private corporations. They're private corporations who have the ability to print money. And in fact, in the UK, they've made about, they make about 97% of the uh, currency in circulation. So we've given power to private corporations to which have a profit motive to print money and give that out to people. And as you say, the major way that we do a lot of our financing, the major way that we do our financing is through debt financing, is through interest bearing loans. And if we analyze that, you can see it's, a bit of a sham, you know, it's basically a load of people get together who have, who are very, very rich and have lots of capital. They start a bank and people who don't have money, who are in need, go to them and they say, I need some money for this, this project, this house, whatever it is. I need some money. I don't have money. Um, and what they then say is, okay, I'll give you this money, but I'm going to charge you for it. Right. And people think that this money is money that they already have. And they think, oh, well, the, the interest is, um, is justified because they could use that money better in other ways. Um, and there's an opportunity cost. That's all simply but, false. But say that money is theirs and they're charging interest. Why is that wrong? Um, that would, I think, still be wrong. Um, it's because ultimately, if someone's coming to you in a position of need for something um, and you give that money to them while saying that... Um, uh, I'm going to require, uh, I'm going to require a charge on this. What you're basically doing is you're putting them into a, a more difficult position overall. You're saying you need to go out and not only repay the, um, principal, but you need to go out and earn that money in, um, in, in the real world and give that back to me. 
Okay. Meanwhile, I'm not going to actually share any of the risk of your project because invariably they'll have had that loan secured in their collateral. So they say, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to secure this loan on your, um, on your house or whatever. I'm not going to share any of the risk of your project. Um, if it doesn't work out, I'm going to get this thing. Right. And that itself, in my view, is bad enough, but it's particularly egregious when it's, it's printed, which is how banks work. They print the money. There's no opportunity cost because the money didn't exist before they give it to you. Right. It's new money. They create, they print that money and there's basically essentially no limits in terms of the ratios of, of how much they can print in terms of the, the actual um, capital that they have. Um, so it's new money, which they produce. They then give it to you. They secure it on assets and then they charge you extra for the, um, uh, for having, for having that loan and you have to go out and earn real money. So essentially what you have is me as an individual or me as a small business, I have to go out and earn real money and give it back to them when what they've done is created money and given it to me. So it's already a completely asymmetrical, unequal process, um, especially when you factor in the fact that they're, that they're printing that money. And, it, and essentially it means that it's guaranteed profit for the banking sector as a whole, barring massive systemic failure, which tends to be you know their faults as we saw in 2008 anyway, barring massive systemic failure, um, that you know the 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 banking sector is invariably extremely profitable uh, and even when it's uh not profitable and everything collapses because as i said because they're an economic elite who own the political system they'll just get their buddies in um you know in government to give them massive bailouts so they still win um so that's it's number inher- 10 if anyone wants to know <laughs> <laughs> exactly so that's the um that's the the underlying heart of how debt financing works um and it's inherently unjust uh because as i said it's there's it's completely asymmetrical you're not sharing the risk you're not giving further input you're making them earn money you're giving them money which you yourself made you're earning a, a, basically a guaranteed profit and if things don't go uh, if, they're not, if the things don't go their way, then you take again another tangible asset through collateral, um, and it doesn't just work on the individual kind of bank to person level, but also on an international level with um, you know the IMF or the World Bank or individual countries giving loans to other people, and what they'll do is they'll attach a bunch of conditions to it, and essentially what it will mean is that they enslave them because what you're saying is okay, you have to take this loan from me. Okay. That, that itself is not necessarily terrible. You know, taking a loan isn't necessarily terrible, but you add the additional bur- burden of interest. So one, even if it's one, 2% a year, that compounds over time. All interest is compounding really, because the, the amount of money that's being, has to be paid back is, is increasing. So you have interest that compounds over time. Um, so that's burdensome. And you have the original loan. So the only way really you're going to pay that off is if your growth is fast enough that you can actually get over the interest, um, the loan plus the plus the interest, which is itself quite rare, especially if you're talking about less developed countries. If then you also have the conditions, various conditions, which are invariably neoliberal type, austerity type policies, and you say, well, we'll give you this if you open up your borders to... Um, you know, or, you know, take away your trade barriers, et cetera, et cetera. If you allow us to use your markets as consumers for our product, which is what they do, um, then again, it's injustice upon injustice because financially they're tied down. They're very heavy burden of debt and they've had to essentially cripple their growth because they have to put all these nonsense neoliberal policies in there um, as a condition. So what it means is you, you as a, as a rich country or as a international organization 
essentially control them because they owe you a lot of money and the money is increasing. And uh, if things get really bad, like we saw with Greece, we'll be like, well, we can give you some more money. Would that help? Would we give you some more interest-bearing loans with conditions? Um, mm. And again, you have widening inequalities. Um, would you would you think about microfinancing that exists within underprivileged countries, for instance, where um, a number of schemes and um, businesses have been set up around this? Um, I mean, this this market has really taken off, and a lot of people will often say that microfinancing is a great way of actually alleviating poverty. What are your thoughts on that? I'll be interested in which um, you know which massively rich country microfinanced its way to development. Um, so this is partly an underinformed opinion because I don't I don't know the microfinancing world that well. But in terms of you know the history of development, what you've seen in terms of how the rich countries um, developed is you basically have the exact same pattern all over the world, including recently rich countries uh, like South Korea or even China actually. But especially South Korea is a very good example. The way that rich countries developed was they um, they essentially uh, had trade barriers. They had um, uh, they promoted certain what's called protectionism. That's what I'm looking for. They were they were often very protectionist in uh, many of their industries. It was the so-called infant industry um, policy that you treat your your small industries like a like an infant. You protect it from predators, essentially. You help it to grow. You give it a lot of support. You give it a lot of subsidies. There's a lot of government state um, financing of industries. America did this. Britain did this. You know, Britain did it extremely, obviously, through colonialism. They would destroy, you know, parts of uh, parts of the Indian economy just to make sure that theirs is benefiting. They infamously, you know, cut the fingers of many women who are sewing um, and and were in the textile industry just so, because they were completely outcompeting the Brits. Um, so, you know, the the rich countries have done this to a huge extent where they have been quite protectionist, um, and they have developed their countries through state financing. Now, if we're saying to the current underdeveloped countries, you know, what you need to do is you need to have your small microfinancing. While they're not saying, okay, we need to do massive debt forgiveness, we need to help you to make your state more robust, we need to make sure that you have control over your own currency, we're not going to mess with your currency in terms of um, currency speculations, um, and we're going to help you to trade on terms that are beneficial to you and to us, but actually maybe we can be a bit, bit asymmetrical, um, then I think it's my own feeling is it's it's kind of a distraction because no one really does proper development through these kind of small scale ways. There's, there are, there is a quite a well-defined route to development. Um, and it's, uh, it's been well-trodden by the Western countries, but now they're saying you need to take every other possible route to development, uh, while we'll still have all your oil and all your gas, um, and we'll still control you in many different ways politically. So I'm not saying microfinancing is a, is, is a bad thing or that it should be necessarily discouraged. But my feeling towards all of these kinds of new schemes is um, stop pretending like this is some kind of, you know, this is the standard model of physics and we're having to work really hard to crack it. You know, if only we knew the answer and maybe this will do. It's like, no, we, we know the answer. We know how, how you do it. Why don't we let the poorer countries implement it and help them to do that rather than um, supporting much smaller scale things, which I think won't be as well fated ultimately. So... You you mentioned um, earlier around your point that to be able to return 
some of the debts that individuals take on or businesses take on, they need to actually um, look at significant growth, um, either individually, either or or within the businesses themselves. We're seeing that same kind of concept applied to the venture capital industry, where investors will expect entrepreneurs to take on, you know, crazy, they set crazy expectations around their business models in the hopes that they will build, you know, billion dollar businesses like Facebook or Amazon. And even the chances of um, investment funds making a return on um, those investments is one, one out of 10. And so uh, a lot of the businesses that end up taking on those checks will go under. So what is, you know, beyond the fact that, you know, growth, you know, focusing on high growth within a business can be often um, a a uh, a death sentence for for the entrepreneurs um who are deciding to go down this route but beyond that um what is what is wrong with businesses that are looking to you know become a billion dollar success so what the monopolies that we see in the industry how has our system created those type of businesses on that scale and are they actually helpful to society or um do you think they go against the concept of actually uplifting members of, of society? So I'll answer that in a, in a general way, then a kind of specific way, if that's okay. Um, another issue with the interest, um, interest-based system is that you can leverage your wealth multiple times over. So if you have some capital to begin with, then you can um, basically through, through leveraging massively gear up how much, uh, you know, how much money you have. Uh, because they say, okay, you have this much capital, we'll give you, we'll give you this much extra. Then you use that money to, um, uh, you know, buy a bunch of assets, and then you can use that to continuously go up and up. And the reason why it kind of works out is because the bank is uh, making profits off loans, and you're making um, you're making good business with the money that you're getting through loans. So a lot of that kind of growth, a lot of that rapid growth in general, can be achieved um, through essentially not necessarily really earning that money. You're not necessarily producing, um, benefits for the rest of society. You're not necessarily growing a really sustainable independent business model. Um, and I think that goes to another, one of the problems with capitalism is because of these things, because of these, um, factors, essentially what it means is that in order to succeed, you need to start off with capital. And if you don't have capital, then you're going to be, you know, basically a loser in the long run. So small inequalities can massively grow over time. Um, so that's just something I thought might be, you know, my perspective on, on uh, that, on growth generally in some respects with respect to companies like, um, Facebook and, uh, and the big tech companies, your question was, do you think that kind of focusing on that kind of growth and that kind of getting that rapid success, whether that's uh, a good focus or not? Um, I think in terms of a lot of the big startups that have kind of gone down that route, they have been shown to have not necessarily the most sustainable business model. Um, so for instance, like your Ubers, uh, which rely on kind of massive reputation gain and then, um, a lot of financing without necessarily being profitable. And again, if that kind of financing wasn't actually available, if you actually had to turn a profit properly and have a proper business that is, you know, 
you know at least somewhat profitable from from the get go or have a have a good um good model towards that then i think a lot of these kind of companies wouldn't grow as fast as they have um so it kind of lends itself towards producing these so called unicorns and you know i'm a big fan of zebras um <laughs> <laughs> we had a great zebra unite uh, season of the dazzle session where umar was a panelist so um if anyone wants to watch that we can post the link in the show notes sure um but in terms of otherwise i think what you should be focusing on as a business is to produce something that's socially beneficial and is a profitable business um i i think if the question is kind of why shouldn't you try and become like google and facebook you know if that means why shouldn't you try and be very very successful you should you should try and aim for getting innovative products that are um that can maybe help to define a market early on and and continue in that vein there's nothing inherently wrong with that i think um but if that means you're going to follow maybe some of the monopolistic practices that they have and um you're going to be gobbling up much smaller companies then that's not necessarily a good thing but i think as the individual entrepreneur i'm not sure in 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 some respects whether that's necessarily uh on you i think if you were to be a very morally responsible person it would be and that's and that's very very laudable and that's something i know the work that you do with up effect is about kind of um uh producing socially beneficial and socially responsible companies uh but ultimately this is a question of regulation if you have if you're not regulating companies and you're allowing them to you know one company to be facebook instagram and whatsapp um and you're allowing amazon to basically completely run markets and be able to cancel producers at a drop of a hat and leaving a lot of producers of um of products in the dirt and or refusing to pay a, a decent wage to its workers <laughs> exactly um or massively undercutting their competitors through artificially low prices continuing to get financing driving them out of business buying them up i mean that's just wild west type stuff but it's uh but it's legal you know or it's been legal america obviously bring a lot of charges against these big tech companies now and big big companies now but um yeah i think i think that i think really in those cases the problem is with regulation and we as individuals should try and be the most socially responsible that we that we can be but realistically uh unfortunately with the moral culture that we have if something's available and it's legal then people are going to end up shooting for it and doing it if they if if they if their aim is to basically be as successful to get the most status and to be to have as much money as possible Mhm. I mean a lot of these monopolies that exist today um we've also benefited from them in many ways. Um you know much of the technology that you and I use were built by many of these companies. So what would you say to capitalists that actually use this as one of their core arguments that we wouldn't have much of the revolutionary innovations that we currently rely on without um the current um economic system that we're working within um so for the monopoly um and the antitrust stuff i mean i would defer mainly to people who specialize in antitrust and there's a really big emerging culture um someone like matt stoller who's written about this at length um who have shown that the the most economic growth happened when we had and the most beneficial growth happened when we had really strong antitrust anti-monopoly laws that were rigorously enforced um and there's a uh, that that guy Matt Stoller wrote a book called Goliath which I'd really recommend to people um and he showed that 
when you had the highest levels of inequalities, you had the most uh, monopolization. So that was, you know, in the 1910s and then 1920s, especially. And when um, the New Dealers took over with uh, Roosevelt, etc., what they did was they brought in very stringent antitrust um, uh, regulations, and that led to, to growth in many of those markets, uh, and it led to much better competition. And it meant that the, um, uh, the wealth that these products are producing are shared over a much wider net. Because if you have just one company owning a sector, which is which is taking in all that wealth, then all the money that's going into there is ultimately coming into one set of shareholders. If you divide that market up into multiple um, companies, then you have you know many many more different people being involved in those enterprises in those businesses, both in terms of employees and in terms of shareholders. So you actually get that wealth distributed much better. As consumers, often it'll be better in terms of pricing. But even in terms of producers of those individual parts, um, you know, if you're a company that's building, I don't know, train tracks and you're the only, or rather that's running trains and, you know, taking care of that whole enterprise. If you're the only people who own the train tracks, then the producers of the individual parts are not going to have any kind of leverage um, to bargain with you. So they're going to be being ripped off. So very often, um, monopolies, which seem good for consumers, are hurting society in a different way, which is through other, they're, they're out-competing other people, and they're also un, um, uh, being very unfair to different producers of the goods which they use. Um, so, and, and then if I may say, then after sort of the, after the basically the World War II, you also had another big era of uh, antitrust up until the 60s, 70s. And that was associated with the fastest economic growth in in US and UK that we've ever had. Um, so, you know, a lot of the dynamism in the economic world comes from stringent regulations that are stopping monopolies um, and things tend to slow down and wealth tends to be much more, much less equally distributed when you allow massive monopolization. Um, in some cases, in many cases, it's bad for consumers. It's especially bad for producers. So I think uh, I think the history of the of the modern economic world itself bears testimony to the fact that we need quite strong antitrust and anti-monopoly um, regulations. I also want to answer what you said about how many people will uh, say that the reason why capitalism is good is you know look around you don't you like your flat screen TVs your iPads etc. Look at the wealth that our capitalist system has produced, and I'd like to politely remind them that the wealth which they, the Western world has enjoyed has largely built, been built on, uh, on others. And I mean that in the most kind of um, grave way that you know, there's been massive genocides, which the Western world has unfortunately committed, um, that they have stolen lots of wealth from other people's lands, that they operated uh, colonies over uh, many centuries and extracted wealth from them systematically. Uh, we saw that the British Empire with the Americans and in many respects it's continuing uh, through financial empires that exist today. Um, so, you know, really, really existing capitalism has been shocking of shocking detriment to um, the, the to, to everyone who is not in that small economic elite that benefits from it. So, you know, even in, in the American case, they built their wealth off the back of slaves. You know, shipped them in the, in the transatlantic slave trade over to America for centuries, um, got them to pick all their cotton, built their empire of cotton, and then they and then people who are supporters of the system have the gall to say, "Look, it's obviously a better system." It's like, well, that wealth wasn't fairly produced. 
This wasn't based on on some kind of high noble on high noble practices. These were built on the worst practices essentially the, the world has ever seen. Um, and that's where the wealth was produced. And then obviously, once you have tons of capital and when your countries are already rich, it's not that hard to make your uh, to make further wealth. It's much more difficult to make your first dollar than it is to make your thousand and first dollar. Um, so the the prosperity that we see that in some respects continues is largely down to that. Um, and what we need to do is is see how can we have growth and development without uh, resorting to that kind of violence on a physical scale and also on an economic scale. And that's why I think we need to look beyond uh, capitalism uh, for solutions in terms of how we can take our world forward. And what does that, do you think any other economic models offer policies like that? So for instance, socialism has recently garnered a lot of interest. So those that have seen the issues that exist with capitalism have turned to socialism. Um, can you can you elaborate what socialism is and what are your thoughts on whether you you consider it as an uh, as a viable alternative to capitalism i think in a way socialists need to elaborate on what socialism is and because <laughs> you know it means so many different things to so many different people and because historically it's basically just a label um, for we need to fight back against the excesses of our current economic system, which is capitalism. Um, and we need to help workers. It's basically a movement on behalf of workers. And the general mechanism which has been proposed is state intervention and state ownership. Um, and yes, kind of, you know, the people who work in the mills ought to own them and, you know, the employees need to own the means or own their their companies and cooperatives. But the reason why I say it's it's vague and it changes is because not necessarily all people who call themselves socialists today would agree to all of these different policies. Um, often it's being it's defined as what they're against rather than what they're for. Um, but I mean, in in its spirit, I think it's a very very positive and very very good thing. And I've you know in my own individual capacity, in a personal capacity, I've, have uh, aligned uh, with political figures who would call themselves socialists, because essentially what they're saying is we need to um, fight back against you know massive monopolization, against uh, wealth inequalities. So that's really good. The question is, do their mechanisms actually achieve their stated goals and their stated aims? And um, I think the the problem is is that they basically don't, because and the history itself bears out to that. Because if you're saying that we need to have massive regulation and tight regulation, and we need to um, base our currency on something a little bit better, um, and we need to have much stronger trade unions, then we had all those things in the West. We had all those things uh, 40, 50 years ago, uh, and slowly it unraveled. So why did it unravel? Was it just historical contingency? Or was it a an inherent part of the system that you drive wealth inequalities, you produce economic elites who then uh, capture political the political landscape? And in my view, it's the latter. Um, so socialism is has very laudable aims in many respects, but if it's still working within our existing system, if it's still basically saying, well, yeah, we're going to have banks that can be privately owned, we're going to have interest-bearing loans and, and a system of interest, um, and we're also not going to do anything on the moral side of things because they can't because it's just political policies or they can change. And that's a different dimension to it is how can you change your culture morally? But if you're saying I'm going to stick within basically the same economic model, but regulate it better, it's like, okay, I look forward to the regulations all coming undone because you're still going to be producing um, wealth inequalities 
because your system tends towards that. Um, so I, I'm skeptical that socialists can achieve the ends which they uh, to which they aim. And my main evidence of that is that it failed in the past. Um, and I think you don't have the intellectual or policy um, that's the uh, resources needed to to stop that happening again. It sounds like, you know, obviously much of socialism is driven by good intentions and there there is a level of morality there which is missing from most of capitalism. And there's all kinds of new movements around conscious capitalism and looking at um, the triple bottom line where you're focusing on profit, planet and purpose with your within your business structures. But, you know, something still seems to be missing in terms of how they will practically pan out in a from a mechanism perspective. So I, I'd be interested to hear from you because based on what I'm hearing, what you're saying is capitalism doesn't work, socialism doesn't work. So what would you propose would be or should be the alternative and what what do you think will work? Is there an ideal economic system that benefits everyone? Umar shares his thoughts in part two, and it's surprising how much sense it makes. He discusses why capitalism and socialism don't work and why he believes the solution to wealth inequalities and global poverty lies within the Islamic economic model. Here is a little teaser from part two. What's your method of taxation? Because in the current system, um, we tax income, which I think is grossly unfair because the working and much of the middle class live on their income, whereas the rich live on their wealth. They don't really care that much about income because they have so much capital and it kind of grows by itself in many respects that they can live off that. And they're not hand to mouth if their income is uh, is taxed. But if you've got a you know, 10, 20, 30, 40% income tax on people who don't have that kind of money and really, really need their paychecks, then um, you are essentially taxing the way that people live and you're not hitting where the real tax base which is in the wealth of the super of the of the elites believe me you don't want to miss this episode we'll be back on the first wednesday of every month with a new episode to ensure you don't miss out please subscribe to reinvision business on your favorite podcasting platform whether that is spotify apple podcasts or something else If you've enjoyed our episode, please leave us a five-star review so that others can learn about re-envisioned business. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter with the handle UpEffect for updates on the next episode. Until next month.